like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal. Come here, the animal, talking animal, talking animal. Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Julie Castle, the CEO of Best Friends Animal Society, a major national animal welfare organization whose mission includes striving in the killing in the nation's animal shelters. This initiative carries the motto, Save Them All. Best Friends is also widely recognized for operating its sanctuary in Kanab, Utah, which houses nearly 1,600 animals, including dogs and cats, horses, birds, rabbits, pot-bellied pigs, farm animals, and more, with many available for adoption. Founded in 1984, Best Friends has evolved in all kinds of ways in the ensuing 35-plus years, some of which we'll discuss in today's interview. But running parallel to much of the Best Friends story is Julie Castle's own narrative, starting with the detail that she was only the 17th employee hired at the now sprawling operation, initially handling an assortment of rather menial tasks, working six-plus days a week for what charitably might be called crummy wages. What's happened since is a classic and inspiring corporate rise through the ranks, holding various positions, including Castle leading no more homeless pets in utah and running best friends marketing and communications divisions we'll hear about best friends evolution and castles of course a sense of how things are going with their key campaigns what the future may hold and more when i speak with julie castle in a few moments here on talking animals on wmnf a quick programming note i'll be hosting a music show tomorrow july 15th from 3 to 6 p.m right here on wmnf as i fill in for Nancy C. Meanwhile, later in today's program, I'll be speaking briefly with Dr. Sandhu, a veterinarian who regularly practices at Companion Pet Hospital in Thanota Sasa. But this Saturday, July 17th, will be offering his services from 1 to 3 p.m. via the Mobile Pet Hospital Clinic at Leo and Lucky's in Parrish, Florida. We'll hear more about that later in today's show. Right now, though, let's discuss Best Friends Animal Society with the person running the whole shebang. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Julie Castle on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Julie. Hey, how's it going, Duncan? Good. Thanks so much for joining us on Talking Animals this morning. Hey, it's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. For sure. So having done this show for a number of years, I've become really interested in how animal organizations grow over the years and how the leadership makes pivotal decisions at crucial junctures and how that organization expands and strengthens or or doesn't and the important role institutional knowledge plays. Best Friends with USCO seems to represent a textbook example of this, so I might weave in some questions along the lines of, these lines as we discuss animal welfare issues, shelters, no-kill, other campaigns, and so on. So reflecting both your position at the top job at the organization and your long tenure there, how would you describe Best Friends Animal Society now? And then set separate questions sort of by comparison, how would you describe Best Friends, let's say, 10 or more years ago? Well, it's a, there's a lot there in that question. And, yeah. 
you know, it's it's been such a fantastic ride for me. And I think about when I first arrived at the sanctuary, um, you know, 25 years ago now, I was on my way to law school, to the University of Virginia Law School, two weeks away. I was coming back from a trip to Mexico with my friends, and we knew it was sort of our last shebang before we entered graduate school. And I pulled into this magnificent Red Rock Canyon, and it just changed my entire life. I called my dad, and I said, hey, dad, not going to law school. I am moving to Kanab, Utah, and I'm going to work for um, nothing wages, (laughs) and I'm going to work for the animals. And How'd that so, go over? Oh, he was thrilled. Wow, that's great. Because he, he was, he, it took him about a decade. Oh, I okay, think. sorry, you were being facetious there. Uh, I, thought, I was. Yeah, yeah, the way you were leading in it, I thought, <laughs> wow, that's, that's quite a dad you got there if he rolled with that kind of uh, startling news. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was, um, and I think back then, you know, it was, we were a really super small organization. And when the organization was founded, I don't think the founders had any idea that they weren't setting out to create this national movement. Yeah. And the thing that was interesting about it is that um, what's evolved is a national movement, the no-kill movement. And I think about just all the progress that's been made since the founding and um, what incredible vision they had to be able to put that stake in the ground. Isn't that interesting? Uh, because, uh, again, just as I kind of frame this a little bit at the outset, just the way that animal organizations are launched and then especially how they unfold from there and, again, what can happen in terms of vision, what can happen in terms of leadership, to me is really, really interesting because you, if, you, if you've been at it for a while and you, and you kind of watch from at least the sidelines many of these, the, the, the contrasts are striking. And one of the things that's interesting about what not infrequently happens and certainly happened here is that, as you noted, the original folks weren't really setting out to create some sort of thing that would have this meaningful, uh, really influential national element to it. They were probably just saying, all right, well, it's Wednesday. Let's get to Thursday. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, it was hand to mouth yeah. when I arrived. It was I'd show up to the Welcome Center um and get my job assignment. And it was like, hey, this fence needs to be repaired. You know, try and fix the transmission on this truck. Install the sprinkler system. And meanwhile, you know, we were basically literally living hand to mouth. Yeah. And I think I, I do. And I think that the future of the organization was super uncertain. And I think that the it was really the clarity of the vision that it, it just grew and grew and grew. And the more people that heard about it, the more people that knew about it um, wanted to be a part of it. And I think the interesting thing is you, you talk to so many people that arrive here, that come to visit, that come to volunteer, and they all say the same thing. They all say, I, this place has changed my life. Yeah. And I think it's the, you know, it's the setting, it's the magic of the canyon, but it's also the purpose of the work because it is such noble work. You know, you're really, you're really helping animals that can't help themselves. Yeah. And there's something just really deeply rewarding about that. Yeah. Well, I would think people that visit now or even just in recent years, I mean, and I've talked to many who have, I've still yet to go and I'm still determined to get there, 
but uh, they they do talk about this kind of magical experience. Still, I would think that when you got there and you're on your way ostensibly to law school, there weren't quite as many, uh, at least overtly, magical elements to it. So I, I just loved because you made such a striking decision, as your dad probably wouldn't let you forget for at least a decade, it sounds like. <laughs> but uh, But what was it back then, especially... That just said to you, this is, hey, forget law school, forget what I thought I was going to do even after law school, if you'd mapped that far out. Uh, I'm going to do this. And, and I, I'm so, like, drawn to this, I'm just going to scrap my plans and, and plunk down here. You know, it's really a, a confluence of events. And I get asked that question all the time because, you know, I'm not somebody who makes a 90, de- 90 degree turn like that. And, um, you know, I'd had my sights set on law school for a very long time. It was everything that I'd studied in undergraduate life, you know, leading up to that, an internship in Washington, D.C., blah, blah, blah. And I think it was shocking to not just my dad, but my family, all of my colleagues, friends, college friends, were thought I was having a midlife crisis at, you know, in my early 20s. And I think that the confluence of events for me went like this. So the first municipal animal shelter that I ever visited was in the college town <clears throat> where I went to college. And I had grown up with animals my whole life. So I was really looking for um, to adopt a cat. And so I went down to the shelter. And of course, back in the day, a lot has changed since then. And I really want to punctuate that. But mm-hmm. went down to the shelter. It was down by the city dump. It was this old dumpy shed. I walked into the shelter. There was this guy sitting behind a, a counter uh, with a cowboy hat on, boots up on the on the counter. And I looked around and all the cages were empty. And I said, hey, I'm here to adopt a kitten or a cat. Um, can you show me around? And he's like, well, I don't have any. And I said, um, what do you mean? And he said, well, I took care of them. And I was like, uh, what does that mean exactly? And he said, well, every morning we dispose of the animals in the back and we put them in barrels and hook up the hose to the exhaust of the truck. Ugh. And I just could not believe what I was hearing yeah. or seeing. Yeah. And he said, hey, uh, I do have a couple of kittens under my desk that, um, you know, they're, they're yours if you want them. So I scooped them up and they became my college pals. And I, that left an indelible mark on my brain. I'm sure, yeah. And so when I got to Best Friends and I saw this magnificent place, like the beauty of the canyon is, you can't describe it, you, you have to visit. Yeah. It, but to hear the philosophy of what no-kill meant and to ask the simple question of, hey, wouldn't we rather be trying to save lives? Isn't that the better path? Because at the end of the day, these animals are part of our family. And it was such a striking contrast to what I'd seen. Yeah. That just had me hooked. And then talking to the founders who established Best Friends, it was, that sold me on it. I'm like, this is my life journey. I've found my, I've found my, my family. I'd be curious though, uh, Julie, like 25 years ago when you wandered in and had this transformational experience. To what extent was the no-kill or at least no more homeless, you know, pets thing a clear kind of vision versus more 
maybe amorphous at that point, but sort of people were, were on that path. And either way, it was going to contrast sharply from the experience you just described where the with the man with the uh, the cats and uh, or the lack of cats, I should say, I guess. But- yeah, I mean, listen, back then it was, I, I think when I started at Best Friends, everybody thought we were crazy. It was a crazy notion. It was an aspirational vision that was totally unattainable. Um, it, we, we really, um, you know, within the animal welfare world, uh, really took a lot of heat for that. Like, this is just, you know, it's not going to happen. Don't, you know, you're setting false expectations. Mm. Um, and it was very amorphous. And I think that there were very few, it was very fringe. And, you know, that Apple ad about the crazy ones. I mean, we really were the crazy ones. Yeah. And I think we were, and, and we just started to um, talk about life-saving. And we really started pushing out um, things that a normal retailer would do, like promoting adoptions, which you think about that now, and it's so commonplace. But back then, very few people were actually promoting adoptions mm-hmm. and pushing out shelter pets and animals that needed, needed to be rescued. And I think the other thing that was really super key for us is that back in the day, when we started communicating with our members um, and we were getting names of people because we'd set up a card table outside a grocery store to talk about the organization and ask for donations. Mm -hmm. That's how we built the organization. And we decided at that point in time that we were going to talk about all the positive stories, all the happy endings. Mm. And it was such a weird concept because Everybody back then was saying, you know what, if you really want to get your cause out there and have it make a, an urgent impression on people, you have to talk about the tragedy of it and what's happening. And, you know, you think back to that time and, um, you know, a lot of nonprofit organizations were talking about the sad and the negative. Yeah. And we were like, we're going to talk about the happy endings. And people just flocked to that. Like, people want to hear those stories. Yeah. It's so interesting because even now, you still get organizations that are trafficking in the sad, kind of dire story. So there's still, even with what what has happened in the, in the ensuing quarter century, they're still embracing that kind of philosophy, even though they've seen the results with the flip side philosophy. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I, I think it's a, a tempting... It's a tempting path to go down, but the reality is people want to be – what we've discovered is we have members that come here year after year, sometimes multiple, multiple times a year. In a way, it's kind of become a lifestyle brand, and they will tell the story about how they first met us at mm. that card table in front of Gelson's Marketplace or Albertson's or Mrs. Gucci's. Um, and talk about how they are attracted to us because of our positive messaging. Yeah, that, interesting. That, that we put our stake in, in the ground around this vision and started working toward it. And I think people just want to be part of something that's going to create real societal change. Yeah. Well, so that kind of, I think, might lead us naturally uh, right into Save Them All, uh, which has been a central piece of, of Best Friends messaging for a, a number of years. Now, save them all is a pretty sweeping phrase. So to what extent when you guys 
first decided on that was it meant as kind of useful, kind of hyperbole, like, hey, even if we don't quite save them all, we're still being super optimistic and we're going to save far more than without implementing that initiative or even just using that phrase. Or to what extent even then did best friends truly mean save them all, whatever it takes to, to reach that success? You know, it's such a it, it's such a great question because um, you know at the end of the day, save them all has been such a great banner for not just best friends, but I think animal welfare in general. In terms of the fact that you are putting out there several messages in one, mm-hmm. you are letting the public know that these animals need saving, and believe it or not, a large percentage of people. Americans have no clue that animals still die in their local shelter. They just don't know it. Yeah. And so putting that message out that there is an action that's needed to be taken is creating awareness that, you know, these animals still need to be saved. Yeah. They're not when you when you relinquish an animal to a shelter, I think a lot of people have in their mind, oh, Fluffy will get adopted. Well, Fluffy doesn't always get adopted. Sometimes yeah. Fluffy only has three days. Yeah. And so for us, it was a, a more positive way of framing up the problem. Right. Than, than just talking about the tragedy of it all. Yeah. So that, that was really our line of thinking there and, and, you know, letting people know that animals do need to be saved still. Yeah. No, it is a super key phrase because there is a, a, obviously a huge spirit of optimism there. But like you've noted, there, there's other elements to it including people who aren't as steeped in this world as you or I or many people listening to the show might be, which is then the question of save them from what? So as soon as that gets answered, it's like, oh, my God, I think we have your attention now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's so so the 25 years that I've been in this movement, I was having dinner with some colleagues the other night now that people are starting to travel again. And people that were started around the same time I did. And one of the women that I was having dinner with was part of the shelter leadership at Maricopa County, which Mm. is Phoenix. Okay. And we were talking about how far we've come, like how unbelievable the progress is. Yeah. And I was asking her, you know, you were over a huge shelter. How many animals were you taking in every year? And she said, well, between the two facilities, it was about 65,000 in one Mm. and about 55,000 in another. And you just think about 110,000 animals in a city like Phoenix and then multiply that by the top, you know, 50 markets in the country and so on and so on. And that's what we were facing back then. Yeah. And so... It's just like, it gives me the chills to think about we are on the cusp of ending something that's been going on for 150 years, creating real societal change. Yeah. Well, I want to, that brings us to a specific question that I have, but I'm going to um, get a caller involved in the conversation first. And then, hi, you're on Talking Animals with Julie Castle. Hi, it's you. Go ahead, please. Hello? Are you there? Okay. Maybe not. Okay. 
If, if not, maybe they can call back. But here's the thing. Uh, first of all, let me just let folks know who might just be tuning in. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Stussy. We did just tune in. My guest is Julie Castle, the CEO of Best Friends Animal Society, the Utah-based national animal welfare organization. Castle was named to the top dog position in 2018, but was amongst the earliest of Best Friends employees and rose through the ranks, providing her a fairly singular perspective among those leading major animal operations. If you'd like to ask Julie a question about Best Friends about any of their initiatives, about animal shelters, no-kill, etc., other topics, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So before our phantom caller, I was going to pick up exactly kind of, I think, where you left off, which is that everything you kind of summed up brings us to no-kill 2025. And Yeah. So... Yeah, I... Oh, go ahead, sorry. I No, I... Go ahead. Finish your question. Sorry about that. No, no. I, I just think for many, the term no kill can be kind of fuzzy. So before we go any further, what exactly do we or you, more to the point maybe, mean by no kill? So so I'll talk about no kill and then how we got to 2025. Um, so no kill is, I think there that is, uh, you know, you, you put that side by side with save them all. And yeah. there are a lot of similarities there. And I think... So for us, no-kill is a benchmark. You know, at, at some point, we decided to take a very business-minded approach to solving this problem. And part of that meant establishing a national save rate, a national benchmark, which we came to at 90%. So that means that w- the way that we measure this is noses in and noses out all the noses that go into a shelter and all the noses that go out. And that just total number, none of them are missed, none of them are, you know, not counted. Mm -hmm. And so we know that of all the animals that enter an animal shelter, 10% roughly are too far gone medically, behaviorally, um, on average. And so we've established that benchmark for every single shelter of 90%. And... That, that doesn't mean to say that some shelters can't save more. There are a bunch that are. Hundreds of shelters are saving more than 90%. But there is a, a realistic notion here that, um, you know, no-kill isn't about saving an animal through suffering. Mm-hmm. No-kill no is about a benchmark in saving all of the animals that can be saved and can be treated. Yeah. And so if an animal needs to be humanely euthanized, we're all for that. Um, so, you know, when we were looking at this problem and sort of dissecting the country, um, we, and we did all this uh, projection, data projection, S-curve modeling, a lot of that kind of stuff, and what we came up with was that we felt like the path that we were on, we were going to get to 20, we were going to get to a no-kill nation by 2030. And I just thought, man, that sounds so far away. This was back in 2015. Yeah. And so at our national conference that we host every year, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to put a stake in the ground that moves that deadline up five years. And I did. And people were like, wait, what? I thought it was 2030. Yeah. Did I miss something during lunch? What happened here? Yeah. <laughs> so um, the, the fascinating thing that happened is it really lit a fire under everybody and but the interesting thing was even back then and you think about how advanced our society is now 
Nobody knew how many shelters there were in America. Nobody knew how many animals were dying in those shelters. Nobody had this database of, you know, these lives that were dying every single day. So we went county by county across the country to gather all of the national data, and we put it into this interactive dashboard that you can find. This is a test of the emergency alert system. How your shelter's doing and how you can help, because that's really the point. Right, and we should hasten to, to add that the website is bestfriends.org to, uh, to get to that information and to break it out shelter by shelter, depending on where you are or where you live. I mean, because one of the things that's really striking is a lot of organizations, small and large, talk about no-kill and highlight the importance and and, uh, and the different steps that can be taken to try to get there. But it's I think it's exceedingly rare for an organization to commit to a deadline. So the fact that there was kind of a an initial deadline floating around the, the best friends world or offices or whatever. And then you said, well, hold on. I'm going to actually shorten that time. It must have been inspiring, but uh, were there people just saying, oh, my God, I think I just kind of can't quite catch my breath right now. <laughs> well, I think that's exactly what happened. You know, I think people were shocked and maybe how are we going to do this? And I think to me it was sort of our moonshot. Yeah. That, that's what I was calling it. This is our moonshot. And, and I did equate it to that speech that, that John Kennedy gave at, at Rice Stadium where he talked about going to the moon in eight years and having to develop alloys that had never that we didn't even, weren't even aware of. And to me, it was similar in that, look, this is a big country. There are 20,000-plus communities. Nobody has this data. Nobody has a plan or a strategy of how we're actually going to accomplish this. Let's pull this whole thing together. And to me, one of our alloys is the dashboard, the interactive dashboard, where now this is a tool that not only can our movement use, but the general public can now have that call to action to get involved with their local shelter to help. Yeah. Because every shelter needs help. Every single one in this country needs fosters, volunteers, donations. Um, you know, it is a national movement to really match up because there is a huge disconnect in my mind between how much people love their pets and what's happening in our nation's animal shelters. And to take that maybe one step further, or at least parallel to that, one of the things that obviously Best Friends has really decided to do, which I think makes a huge difference, again, because there's just been so many well-meaning, you know, otherwise smart people run organizations that have had similar goals. But until you really bring science and math and tangible things in there, research, statistics, I mean, you can't really get anywhere other than just like, well, it sure would be great if this were better. But unless you really have something you can grab onto and point to and say, here's where we are, here's where we're going to get to. And then, you know, like you say, the dashboard where you can just do that shelter by shelter. I mean, I think that really makes things super clear and tangible in a way that really does cultivate change. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the way I think about it is like there's so many great causes out there. There's so many great nonprofits but most of them don't have a solution or a cure. Mm -hmm. And for me, the, the thing that gets me up out of bed every day and excited in the morning is how often is it 
that you can be part of something where you're actually in your lifetime creating societal change. Yeah. And this is that. And I just think it, it is such a rare opportunity for anybody that's involved. And, you know, you think about how animal sheltering started back in the late 1800s and started because there were dogs running around New York City and the public was concerned about rabies, and rightfully so. And they, you know, called on city officials to do something about it. And so their their solution was to round up all of the dogs, put them in a cage, and dunk them in the East River. And the public was went wild over this. They were like, no, that's not what we meant. But the solution ended up being what what is the equivalent of the modern shelter, which is basically... Um, terminating these lives but just behind closed doors and this yeah. practice was the same for decade after decade until 1970 1980 1984 when the founders of best friends said what are we doing yeah why why is this happening there's got to be a better way yeah so to think about that moment in 1984 and where we are today where the number of animals dying is 347,000. And when I started, the guesstimate was 17 million. Mm. That's remarkable. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, Julie, I'm going to get a caller involved. There's a couple emails, and then we'll kind of just keep rolling from there, I think. Uh, awesome. Hi, hi, you're on Talking Animals with Julie Castle. Hi, Duncan. Thanks for the show. Uh, uh, Julie, I want to let you know you're doing God's work. Um, it's, uh, you know, I adopted a dog from the Pet Resource Center. And that dog would have been put down, I'm sure, had it not been for the uh, influence of best friends. And uh, she was highly anxious. And, oh, they, she was confiscated in a police raid with five others. And uh, wow. they worked at the Pet Resource Center on Falkenberg. They worked with her for five months. Wow. And um, wow. I got her. So. Oh, that's so that's awesome. That's great. What a great story. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank for, you. Thank, thank you. Thank you for what you do. Thanks for your call. Uh, emotional, uh, nice uh, story there for sure. So, Julie, he here's a couple things. One of our emails, uh, at least part, part of the email says, uh, thanks for this great guest today. I was wondering if your guest could address how pets are getting dumped at shelters now that the pandemic is easing in the USA as folks are returning to work at offices instead of home. How can we prevent this from happening in the future? You know, I might add or just expand to that, that it seems like from conversations we've had on this show that the, another element of that is that uh, through the pandemic, people have uh, lost jobs or worse, lost businesses, and it just found at a certain point that they just could not sustain uh, the expenses of whatever animal or animals that they might have adopted or had already. So anyway, uh, just because that sort of hooks into our broader conversation here, maybe you might want to address this in whatever way you'd like, Julie. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a great question, and we... It, it, for us, like it's tempting to hear these, you hear these reports from across the country. We hear them from our network of shelter partners. And I'm telling you that the shelter workers are, are doing God's work. Yeah. Um, it is a really tough business to be in. And I think that we, so we, we hear these stories from our partners. It's tempting to get sucked into the anecdotal story. We always go back to the data. And so the data, points us in the direction we need to go and where we focus our resources. The pandemic year, the COVID year, was an incredible 
moment for animal welfare because we saw the greatest reduction in animals dying in the history of our movement by 45%. And so we saw this huge number of people adopting and fostering like never before. Yeah. And what we did see is intake go down as well. And part of that was um, because a lot of the shelters were closed, just like everything else during the pandemic. So people were not taking animals to the shelter. Mm. What we're seeing now is we're seeing, uh, we, we are seeing intake is now up from the pandemic year, but it's not as high as 2019. So it's still not at the level it was before the pandemic, which is great news. Yeah. And, and we haven't seen the, um, we haven't seen the pandemic puppy um, people returning those animals to the shelters. We haven't seen that in our data yet. We are hearing stories from our partners, but the stories are mostly around, interestingly, and I never would have predicted this, staffing shortages. And so we've got, just like every other business, we're having a hard time finding staff. Mm. And what that means is we're having a hard time getting the animals out of the shelter that are in the shelter. And that seems to be the, the clog up right now. And so I would just ask your listeners to, you know, reach out to your local shelter and um, help them with fostering or help them with adopting animals or spreading the word through your social media channels that there are adoptable animals in your shelter right now because most shelters that we're talking to are short-staffed. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so and, and to another email question, because one of the things we haven't really addressed specifically in terms of measures to get to no-kill by 2025, but it's sort of almost always a part of this kind of conversation generally, is TNR or TNRV, which is trap, neuter, return, or trap, neuter, return, vaccinate. So this, uh, which we can come back to more uh, specifically if we want or if there's time, but this emailer is saying, Duncan, please ask her why her shelter practices trap, neuter, and release, and how do they justify the killing of over a billion wild birds in the United States? Yeah, I mean, this has been, this is sort of an ongoing debate between, you know, cats and and the effect that they might have on birds and wildlife. And the truth is there are a lot of factors that are affecting wildlife, climate change, um, solar fields, you know, windmills. There's just a lot of stuff that goes into this. It is not a black and white issue. And so... The way that I think about this, and, and honestly, this started in two cities. It first started in Salt Lake City and was piloted by Best Friends. And Jacksonville, Florida, really blew this program up, which was, they called it Feral Freedom. And it was a, a form of TNR. And um, you, you guys have some incredible shelter leaders in your state. Yeah. And, you know, Jacksonville has you know, is, is, a, is a standout community for saving lives, led by Denise Deisler. Um, so if you, if you have it in your heart to send her a donut, send a donation her way, please do. But, but really, this program was so cool because it, it was one of those light bulb moments where um, the typical practice of the time was basically to round up every cat shelters could find, take them to the shelter. And of course, if you have a cat, you know that 
They don't like to travel. They don't like, they like their routine. Yeah. And when they're in a, when they're in a stressed out situation, they seem feral or a lot of them do. So you get them in a shelter setting. Of course you think they're feral. And so you send them back to the euthanasia room. And this was happening a lot. And, and the, the data that we had back then was 2% of cats that entered shelters, 2% made it out alive. Wow. And so a gentleman by the name of Rick Descharmes asked the simple question, why are we bringing cats into the shelter in the first place? There's so many out in, out in the community already. Like, why are we doing this? Let's just bypass the shelter get them fixed, put them back into their native environment because they're part of the fabric of the community. And um, it is the greatest method to reduce outdoor cat populations is to have them fixed in a managed colony setting. Yeah. And so it was this really revelatory moment for the entire movement. And now there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these programs all over the country. And the interesting thing to think about is that American shelters, this is an estimation, handle, so for every one cat that enters a shelter, there are 8,000 to 15,000 out in communities. Wow. So you ask the question, why are we bothering, why are we even bothering relating to cats in shelters? Because it's such a small percentage of the cats in this country. Yeah. And also in terms of some of the statistics and again sort of math and science that are critical to really sort of looking at these things it wasn't that long ago that peter wolf also of course of best friends was on the show and mm. i mean he brings a, a totally so good yeah and yeah. it's so just a very scientific mathematical oriented uh, analysis to this very issue so in terms of animals including the bird issue that of course comes up not infrequently, and other things. I mean, he's studied this. He's got statistics and uh, really, really interesting. So I'm afraid we're sort of near... near, Oh, go ahead, Julie. I was just going to say, like, these are the kind of people that want to come work in this field these days. He was a brake engineer at Toyota, and now he's a champion for feral cats, community cats. Yeah, I think he at one point was going to design brakes, and then I think there was, like, furniture or something else, and nonetheless, he got somehow lured into uh, dealing with uh, community cats uh, for you guys, which is uh, everybody's uh, gain, uh, except for the people that might have gotten an amazing piece of furniture designed by him. But uh, (laughs) So, yeah, so we are sort of nearing the end of our time, Julie, unfortunately, and there's a number of other things I was hoping to get to. But one thing I was curious about, and and we, we may have touched on it earlier, is Decision-making can be really challenging, and some decisions are truly vexing, and that's why CEOs get, get the big bucks, of course. So I was wondering if you give me an example, although you may have already done so, of a kind of a complex decision that you found somewhat simpler, at least, because you had held key positions at Best Friends along the way to then ultimately becoming CEO. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Um, I, I feel like I was joking around the other day that I've worked in pretty much every single job in the organization except for in our accounting department. Okay. And, um, and so it's given me this really, you know, unusual and I'm humbled by it. 30,000-foot view of our organization, but also animal welfare and and a lot of the different personalities and players. And I think it's helped me um, in so many different ways to understand the other side of the coin. Mm. And so the way that I like to make decisions, especially ones that are complex, is to 
it seriously, literally, you mentioned Peter Wolf, is to bring people in the room that are way smarter than me mm. to advise on what are the pros and cons. And ultimately, my North Star and the North Star of the organization is do the right thing. Yeah. The way that we make decisions here is to do the right thing. Yeah. But again, do the right thing informed by really smart science, smart statistics, smart research, and then proceed with the motto. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Perfect. Okay. I think that might be exactly the right the point at which to leave our conversation, though. I would love to talk with you much longer. Maybe we'll talk again sometime. But we've been speaking with Julie Castle, the CEO of Best Friends Animal Society. Once again, the website is simply bestfriends.org with all that information and where places where you can kind of check out how your shelter is faring and, and the effort. And uh, Julie, thank you so much for making the time to join us today on Talking Animals. I really appreciate it and really enjoyed speaking thank with you. you. Thanks, Thanks Duncan. Thank great, you. great spending time with you. Thanks See so you much. later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. In a moment, we'll hear from Dr. Sandu, who will be providing veterinary services through the Mobile Pet Hospital Clinic that will be parked this Saturday, July 17th from 1 to 3 p.m. at Leo and Lucky's in Parrish, Florida. Right now, that we're going to step into the comedy corner with a piece that feels relevant to part of our conversation a moment ago with Julie Castle. This is Nick Turner with a piece called Rescue Dogs in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. Not every rescue dog you can brag about rescuing something. I have a friend who just got a three-month-old puppy. The most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Looks like it was sculpted by Michelangelo. I would throw my dog into the river to get this dog. And he's like, I rescued a dog. You didn't rescue, you won a dog. You rescued him. You rescued him from the Westminster Dog Show where he was about to be murdered by gold medals. I rescued a dog. He's four. He has a collapsing trachea and he spends most of the day trying to lick the inside of my mouth off. I don't let him. He's a good dog. We got him from a shelter that we chose because it was the only shelter we found that didn't want to come do a home check, which is very popular and very insulting to me as a guy trying to do a good thing for an old dog. They want to come over to your house and look around and make sure your house where you live uh, is good enough for what is currently a homeless dog. <laughs> All right, that was Nick Turner in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Rescue Dogs, taken from a television appearance. Right now it's time to hear uh, from Dr. Sandu, who will be offering veterinary services through the Mobile Pet Hospital Clinic that will be set up this Saturday, July 17th, from 1 to 3 p.m. at Leo and Lucky's in Parrish. This is Dr. Sandu on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Dr. Sandu. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Sure. Thanks for joining us. So I guess the key question overall maybe is why offer the mobile clinic? Is there a sizable constituency that simply can't get into the office for a visit? Yes, sir. Well, with the, the financial effect of the COVID-19, mm -hmm. that is one, you know, population sure. which were having the ability to afford to go to the regular hospitals, but now they cannot. That was one population, which is the one reason. And the other population is which historically cannot afford to go to the regular hospital to take care of the routine care, meaning the vaccines and the preventions. 
so i decided to offer the low cost community shot clinics so the difference is there is no office call fee there is no exam fee mm-hmm. you see the same veterinarian you see and you get the same vaccines same preventions which we sell at our regular hospital but at a discounted price right in your neighborhood I see. That is the main difference. Right. So it's just easier and it's accessibility that people otherwise don't have. Yes, sir. And there is a saving of the office call, which goes anywhere around 40, 50 bucks per mm. pet. I see. You don't charge that over there. So you have two dogs. You come over. You want rabies. Just pay for the cost of rabies. Sure. No office call. So it sounds like a lot of times it's, uh, it is uh, vaccinations, shots, those kinds of things that typically do come up at the mobile uh, pet clinic. And that is the routine care, you know, which your pet need every year, and these vaccines are good for one year. Sure. We don't see any sick patients over there, but that's not what, you know, uh, you look forward to. You want to take care of your pet. Sure. But you don't see these problems. So it's a prevention. Right. So no one so no one does bring in a pet that's got like a more complicated medical situation because they know that that's really not what the what the mobile clinic is is designed to do. Is that right? I give a free exam and if I see this pet you know need immediate medical attention or something which I cannot do over there, I refer to the nearest animal clinic. We have the list of hospitals which are in the neighborhood, and we just tell them that this is something which should, you know, be taken care of at a regular hospital. Sure. So at least they get a free opinion, like without spending the $50. Yeah. They get a opinion from a state licensed veterinarian. That's great. Well, that's uh, very kind and generous of you, obviously. And uh, how often, how many patients would you say would you say typically see in that one to three p.m. period on the, on the Saturday afternoons? Well, normally on Saturday we have like four, five different locations. Oh wow! Five okay. Different cities. We start at nine o'clock. We end at six o'clock. Oh, I see. So you're making the rounds. It sounds like then. Yes, we go to one city nine to ten, and then. From there, we go to another city, 11 to 12, and then I 1 see. to 3, you know, at Leave and Lucky in Parish. Yeah. Which is the historically the oldest location, you know. Right. And the owners over there, they started, I think we started in 2013. Oh, I see. Yeah. And since then, we are getting great support from the community. That's great. And we, we go there every other Saturday. I see. So so it's really every two weeks that you're set up at all these places, including Leo and Lucky. Yes, sir. Every other Saturday, I am out in the community with my team in different cities, in Manatee County and Hillsborough County. That's great. Well, let's let's at least provide the details because I wasn't even aware of those other stops on the Saturday. But let's say Leo and Lucky's is at 8943 U.S. Highway 301 North in Parrish. And for people that they're using GPS, the zip code there would be 34219. So, uh, well, this sounds like a really a, a great service, uh, Dr. Sandu. And, um, and maybe people can uh, track you down and find out some of the other locations where you'll be, other parts of it. All information is posted on our website. It's easy to remember, mobilepethospital.org. Okay. And the whole schedule is posted over there. That's great. So, again, every two weeks you're you're at all these different places on on that given Saturday. Right, sir. That's so wonderful. All right, well, thank you so much for making the time to join us amongst treating all the other patients you have there at the uh, the (laughs) clinic. I appreciate it, and I think we've learned some important things here. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Anytime. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
We have just about reached the end of Talking Animals on WMNF. The music kicks back in, though, shortly with Scott Elliott from noon to 3 p.m. with uh, three glorious hours of music, followed by Sam Vall with another three hours of music. And we just keep the music coming as we roll into our block of Latin programming and beyond. And a reminder, I'll be doing a music show tomorrow, Thursday, July 15th, from 3 to 6 p.m. right here on WMNF. I know, seems unlikely, doesn't it? Anyway... We are going to get into Name That Animal Tune, the prize of which I'll offer a lily brush, fantastic gizmo for removing pet hair from clothing and carpet, cars, couches, other stuff. We'll give that, offer that to the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song. It's Name That Animal Tune on Talking Animals on WMNF. Can you name that animal tune? If so, we'll take your guess. After the show. And right now we are wrapping up today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Please visit TalkingAnimals.net for archives of every show we've ever done. Links to our social media pages are there as well. All kinds of other info, one kind or another. Thanks so much for joining us today. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. It's Talking Animals on WNF Tampa. Scott Elliott is up next right after NPR News and then Sam Wall after Scott. Keep listening to WMNF. Thanks. <laughs>